Support for this podcast comes from Outdoor Supply Hardware, inviting listeners to OSHA's big anniversary sale celebration, May 20th through the 26th, featuring daily deals, $15,000 in giveaways, 20% off store-wide on Saturday and Sunday, and a lot more. Learn more at OSH.com. From KQED. From KQED Public Radio in San Francisco, I'm Mina Kim. Coming up on Forum, after the deadly insurrection of January 6th, Twitter and other social media companies permanently banned Donald Trump from their platforms for inciting the violent mob that overran the U.S. Capitol. Facebook indefinitely suspended the ex-president's account, and its oversight board is considering whether to make that permanent. But the bans raise complicated questions about whether powerful tech companies should have the unchecked ability to remove people from their platforms and when. The law and politics of deplatforming. After this news. This is Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Facebook formed an oversight board last year that's reviewing the company's decision to suspend indefinitely Donald Trump's account in the wake of the insurrection. Yesterday, that board issued five other rulings, four of which overturned Facebook's decision to remove posts, a potential sign of the board's reluctance to police speech. A decision on the ex-president's account is expected by April. But Facebook's suspension and Twitter's decision to permanently ban the ex-president have already generated a lot of debate around their effectiveness and how much power tech companies should have to de-platform public figures and control speech. Emily Bazelon, in her piece for New York Times Magazine, summed it up this way, We're uncomfortable with government doing it. We're uncomfortable with Silicon Valley doing it. But we're also uncomfortable with nobody doing it at all. Emily Bazelon, great to have you with us. Thanks so much. I guess a good place to start is why Twitter and Facebook ultimately banned Trump's accounts. I mean, they stated it was concern about immediate threats to public safety. But was that it? I mean, did other calculations go into their decisions? Well, that's a great question. Um, I think... They would say that uh, President, former President Trump's role in inciting the violence on January 6th was a kind of straw that broke the camel's back for them after he had, um, you know, promoted over and over again his idea, his false idea that the election was stolen. There are good questions, though, about other political considerations, because, of course, they happened to act right as the Democrats were taking over both chambers of commerce and the politics of deplatforming Trump changed because he was leaving office. It's impossible to know um, how those factors played in. Sure. But yes, that is definitely a question that's been raised. I mean, interestingly, they had been starting to take steps like attaching warning labels on his posts, for example. Uh, But after the insurrection, of course, as you said, it appears it was the straw that broke the camel's back. Um, But I guess I wonder, you know, I wonder about whether or not they had any kind of intelligence or information (laughs) that further prompted their actions uh, that maybe we didn't really know about. Well, I think what we do know is that it was clear that um, 
some of the people who planned the protests and who were circulating the Stop the Steal hashtag and who were talking about violence at the Capitol were planning on Facebook in particular in the groups mode on Facebook and also somewhat on Twitter. So I think the notion that the sites were concerned about future threats of violence seems pretty clear. Hmm. Well, whatever the, the reasons, the ones known and unknown, this move has certainly generated a lot of debate. Um, we've seen a lot of scholars say that they support it, that they think it's a good idea. Can you talk a little bit about what uh, some of the supporters of this move by these tech, uh, these social media giants, uh, what they're saying? Yeah, sure. I mean, there's an argument for, and then I'm sure we'll get to the argument against. Yes. The argument for is that in the short term, this is working in the sense that um, you see a real drop in false conversations on social media about the election and the, uh, the post-election political conversation, and that that's a healthy development for the democratic discourse, that it was time for the social media platforms to try to do something to make that happen. And there was some data to back that up. I saw from analytics company Zignal Labs that online misinformation about election fraud fell by 73%. Yeah, and so I, you can, um, I think you can give some credit to deplatforming Trump himself because he was one of the, you know, top spreaders of disinformation about the election. It's also true that Twitter went in and wiped out some 70,000 accounts associated with QAnon that mm -hmm. were also spreading misinformation. So there was this kind of larger effort to deplatform that, you know, I think also accounts for the drop that you're describing. So explain why, uh, even though Facebook uh, Twitter's actions do not legally violate, right, the First Amendment, since they're private companies, that there are a lot of other entities that are worried about the move that they made, that they think it's a bad idea, and that it, that potentially there's some discomfort there in terms of its relationship with the First Amendment. Right. So the way I think about this is that as you said, these are private companies. They are not uh, bound by the First Amendment. They're not the public square. They're like malls where private owners make and enforce the rules. But they are effectively our public square. And they talk about free speech values all the time. And we associate them with fairly unfettered free speech. Mm -hmm. So I think that's the sort of tension you're getting at. And what I heard from a lot of people, you know, human rights advocates, for example, is concern about the precedent of deplatforming. I mean, once you start saying that somebody cannot speak anymore in your forum because of things they have said before, you open up the possibility that, you know, dissidents, uh, minority groups, um, sex worker activists, the kinds of groups we generally worry are vulnerable to censorship, that they could all be kind of future targets of deplatforming. And so it's the, it's, the deep, it's the precedent that mm -hmm. I think um, the human rights folks are concerned about. Yeah, the kind of precedent this kind of ban will set and who could ultimately be harmed by it. Um, the other thing that you talk about is that private companies, you write, quote, have no legal obligation to explain its decisions the way a court or regulatory body would. Can you just walk us through why that's problematic? 
or potentially problematic. Yeah, sure. I mean, one of the things that a democratic process does is provide reasons for what's happening and some obligation toward consistency, right? So courts look at one case and then they look at another case and they compare them and they explain what they're doing. And then you kind of come up with a body of law and these different examples and you can decide for yourself whether you think they're being fair and consistent in their application of rules. But private companies have none of that obligation. And so we have to take at face value whatever opaque statements they make about why they're doing things, and they have no obligation to be consistent. So, you know, one of the questions that law professors raised about the decision to deplatform Trump is, well, what about other world leaders who are still allowed to have their Twitter and Facebook accounts who are also known for spreading disinformation or inciting violence? Why are they still online? And, you know, in a court, you could then raise that, but there's no real way to do that in like the court of Twitter. Hmm. The Facebook oversight board you referred to earlier is an early attempt. It's just getting off the ground to start providing some of that um, explanation. So we'll see how that works. Yeah. Could you describe like what the Facebook oversight board is, who's on it and, and what kinds of powers it has? Yeah. So right now there are 20 people on it from around the world. They're supposed to be experts um, from lots of different countries and they are supposed to be independent. So the idea is that once they take a decision that Facebook has made to take down a piece of content and they agreed to review it, their decision is binding on the company in that particular instance. And at first, Facebook did not seem inclined to give the decision about whether to continue the suspension of Trump to this oversight board. But then they did. And that's a very big deal, because that means this board presumably is going to have the power to make this call for the company. And it's obviously like a very big debut for them. Does Facebook see that as advantageous for them, that they basically aren't going to be necessarily held responsible for the final decision on this? I think that is the advantage. The disadvantage will be if the board makes a decision that's very unpopular and then Facebook is stuck with it. Uh, So it's going to be really interesting to watch that play out. We're talking about Twitter and Facebook, other social media companies' decisions to ban or suspend Donald Trump from their platforms, and the questions that those bans raise about big tech's role in policing speech. We're talking with Emily Bazelon, staff writer for the New York Times Magazine. Her article, Why is Big Tech Policing Free Speech? Because the Government Isn't, appears in this week's issue. And you, our listeners, can join the conversation. What do you think? I mean, was Twitter correct to deplatform Donald Trump? Would you like to see the Facebook suspension become permanent? Or do you think it was... Do you think it was too little too late or do you think it was an overreach? Uh, Give us a call 866-733-6786. Again, 866-733-6786. You can also reach us on Twitter or Facebook at KQED Forum or email your questions to forum at kqed.org. You know, one of the other big concerns about um, deplatforming Trump was this sense that, and also all these other accounts, as you mentioned, tens of thousands of accounts of other people, that it could push these sort of extremist groups underground, out of public sight, they become harder to track. And could that potentially increase the risk of violence? What are you hearing and learning around that concern? Well, one interesting data point on that front is the effort to contain ISIS online. So when that started, there was a lot of the same concern. If you drive them underground, are they actually going to be more able to recruit? 
And what researchers told me about the numerous studies that have been done is that actually it's pretty effective. Like you want to push um, these groups into the fringes and you don't want them to be able to easily reach people who don't go and look for them. Right. Mm. So there's like a difference between someone seeking out a radical um, group prone to violence versus like stumbling on them because YouTube recommended a video that they posted or Facebook recommended that you join a group with them in it. And so I think that the research suggests that this kind of effort to prevent radicalization from spreading online is probably a better rather than worse idea. But like anything, there are trade-offs here. I guess the concern then around like if you do get people who are at the point that uh, they would be willing to go to sort of the far corners of the Internet to gather and get this information, that they're more likely to to actually plan attacks or violent things. Yes, that is the concern. And then you can't see the planning because it's more underground. But look, I mean, the fact that the planning was above ground for the assault on the Capitol did not uh, actually uh, enable law enforcement authorities to stop it. And I think the lesson for groups that are planning future violence, it's pretty clear that you're better off doing this in encrypted chats anyway. We've seen a big move toward Telegram and Signal, for example. So I feel like the cat's kind of out of the bag on that one. And we'll have more with Emily Bazelon after the break. Again, if you want to weigh in on what you think about Twitter's ban, uh, of Trump and Facebook's suspension, or if you want to weigh in on what you think the government should do to control speech that incites violence, give us a call 866-733-6786, email us forum at kqed.org, or post on Twitter or Facebook at KQED Forum. I'm Nina Kim. Stay with us. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. We're talking with Emily Bazelon, staff writer at the New York Times Magazine. Her article, Why is Big Tech Policing Free Speech? Because the Government Isn't, appears in this week's issue. And we're talking about Twitter and other social media companies' decisions to ban Donald Trump from their platforms. And this listener tweets, I don't know what there is to debate. Being president is one thing, but being just an ex-president is something else entirely. Private companies have the final say. No First Amendment in their platform at all. If they don't want him there, fine. What's your reaction to that? Especially as you have talked about how the social media companies have sort of become this de facto public square, though technically they're a mall. <laughs> um, I do think there's a difference between deplatforming an elected leader and a former elected leader, right? I mean, there's an argument to be made that uh, world leaders should have their views heard no matter how toxic, because that's part of how their constituents judge their performance. And that's different if you're no longer in office. 
I do think that there's another nuance to this whole conversation and question, which is the difference between having your message go out and having it go out instantly without any context, right? I mean, that's like, if you're the president of the United States, your views are going to get aired. But if you have to issue an official White House statement or have a press conference, people are going to be able to ask you questions and the media or other interlocutors are going to be able to mediate there and and kind of filter what you're saying and question whether it's factual or not. Whereas, you know, what Trump did incredibly successful on, successfully on Twitter was to just put his message out there. And then we know from reporting, he really enjoyed watching TV stations change their coverage to just put up the tweets and he didn't have to answer for it. So I think that's part of this difficulty in the online space that we should be thinking about. Well, I guess what I'm wondering is though, that listener mentioned no First Amendment issues there, no real First Amendment concerns there. But I mean, I was struck by something that Jack Dorsey said when he was sort of telegraphing some ambivalence on the ban in a series of tweets. And he wrote that a company making a business decision to moderate itself is different from a government removing access, yet can feel much the same way. I mean, does that ban sort of implicate this, at least the spirit of the First Amendment? Yes, I think it does. And I think that's a great uh, quote that you're pointing to from Dorsey that recognizes the tension here, right? I mean, we do have this interesting moment um, in the 1940s. So the Supreme Court had this case where they had a company town. There was this company, um, uh, an oil manufacturing company that they just owned the town outright. And someone was distributing religious literature on the sidewalk and the courts prosecuted that person, like they were arrested. And then she brought this action saying, wait a second, I have a first amendment, right? I was out on the public street. And so the question was in a fully owned private space, does she win? And in that one moment in the 1940s, the Supreme Court said, yes, you win um, a privately owned space like this. Basically, the company was in the role of the government. And so they had to let you distribute literature. You had a First Amendment right to do so. We have not seen anything like that in the social media space. But I think you can see there why people there's something that feels wrong about this idea that the private companies get to make up all the rules themselves. Well, let me go to Frank in San Jose. Hi, Frank. Hello. Um, hi, I've been thinking about this for a long time. And, and one of the things I believe is happening here uh, is uh, there's a vacuum that's been created. The, the governments of this country have not advanced in the way they communicate to citizens uh, in, in parallel with all the private sector uh, platforms. And so don't you think it's time that there w there is at least one platform that is issued by the government on a daily basis that competes with all these private platforms? And that one platform could be called government Facebook or whatever, but it's a platform that actually puts out news every day of what the government of this country has accomplished that day in the courts, in the legislature and in the administration. That way you would have one resource for all citizens to go to, to actually see what, for, for want of a better word, the truth. What do you think of that idea, Emily Bazelon? Well, it's interesting. You know, we have uh, publicly funded media in the form of PBS and NPR, 
Uh, they don't, you know, just sort of provide an unmediated microphone for the government. There are proposals, though, to try to increase uh, funding for local media, for example, so that you have a more competitive and hopefully fact-based media landscape. And that would compete with Twitter and Facebook. It would also compete with very partisan media, which is another part of this equation. When you start looking at the spread of disinformation, you really see that Fox News and other right-wing media outlets just spread more disinformation than the mainstream media. And they're just not, they don't hold themselves accountable for factual errors. I don't mean in saying that to excuse the mainstream media, which has all kinds of flaws, uh, but there is that difference there. Well, I guess one of the things that I've been thinking about is how we in the U.S. interpret, you know, how we should sort of police, I guess, for lack of a better word, free speech and how it's different from other democracies. I mean, I feel like the U.S., especially when I look at the way European countries have responded to major social media companies like Twitter and Facebook, has a very specific view of free speech. Yes, you're right about that. Um, we have much more faith in the marketplace of ideas and less fear of anti-democratic propaganda than European countries. So their history, they look at the history of fascism and the way in which fascist leaders have risen to power through their electoral system. And they say, you know what? There are some anti-democratic ideas that the democracy needs to guard itself against. And so, for example, we're going to ban certain kinds of hate speech or denial of the Holocaust. In our country, we look back at our history, which has some key moments in which members of the Communist Party were prosecuted for free speech or the socialist leader Eugene Debs during the First World War. And we say the worst thing of all is to give the government any kind of power over policing speech. And so we're going to do everything to make sure we don't do that. And that's the kind of difference in the historical traditions. And I think you're right that it translates into also a difference in willingness to regulate the social media platforms. Yes, and also, as you pointed out, a principle that more speech is better, that more speech will be the regulating force. Yeah, we have a lot of faith in the marketplace of ideas, this notion that the truth is going to win out, the good ideas are going to beat the bad ideas, and that the worst thing is to suppress speech because then you make people feel really angry and silenced and maybe they turn to weapons instead of uh, the tool of speech to make their views heard. That's a classic argument for more speech is better. The problem is there's a lot of evidence that it's not actually true. And online, we see over and over again in the research that lies actually spread faster and further than the truth. And so there's just like a real tension there. Yeah. I mean, if you look at the last several years, doesn't that really challenge that view and, and really raise the question as to whether or not our perspective and then the way that we set policy based on them is really adequate now for our social media era? Yes, I think that there is evidence for that. And then again, the problem is you don't want the cure to be worse than the disease, right? I mean, mm. any tool that the government creates to try to make for a better information ecosystem then falls into the hands of the next government. And so you always have to think about how you feel about that possibility. 
Um, I think the Europeans are going to lead the way toward the kind of more hands-off uh, regulation that, you know, we had, for example, with TV and radio broadcasting from the 1920s to the 80s, when the people who owned TV and radio stations, they had some public interest obligation that the FCC oversaw. Um, and, and that seemed to me at least to work okay. But other people look back at that history and they say, no, no, there were examples of the broadcasters abusing those powers and the government abusing those powers, and we shouldn't do that again. Well, let me go to caller John in Porta La Valley. Hi, John. Hello there. Thank you. Part of the problem, I think, is the large Internet companies, take Facebook, for example, don't admit that they are publishers. In fact, a publisher would take responsibility for vetting the content it carries, for instance, reviewing letters to the editor. The writers have to identify themselves. A hateful or horribly inaccurate letter might not be published. For instance, in uh, Miramar, Facebook carried content that it didn't review, calling on citizens of Miramar to kill their Rohingya neighbors. And that um, resulted in the deaths of something, I think it was 40, 50,000 people. And I think we need a system that would hold a publisher, in fact, responsible, at least have some degree of responsibility for that, the same way a newspaper editor with any degree of moral fiber would hold him or herself responsible. John, thanks. You know, First, your reaction to that, Emily Bazelon, but also just John is making me think about all the debates that we had about what exactly Twitter and Facebook are. Are they tech companies, <laughs> publishers, media companies? Right. I mean, I would agree with John that we more and more see that social media companies are effectively publishers. And one of the reasons that this is such a... Um, you know, sticking point is that we have laws in this country that give internet service providers immunity from civil lawsuits, especially defamation, because the courts have ruled that they're not publishers. And so, you know, John is right, a letter to the editor in a newspaper, if it's defamatory, the newspaper is liable, whereas a defamatory post on Facebook, Facebook is not liable. Um, and so whether that should still be the rule, especially for these giant companies, I think is an interesting question. Uh, or you could argue that, yes, they should have immunity from suit, but they should have to do something <laughs> to earn that immunity. And one of the things they should have to do is prevent the kind of incitements to violence that John was talking about, which have been really devastating abroad. And I think we have seen the platforms in the past be very slow to act, and they kind of talked about this value of free speech, this very American absolutist conception of free speech when there was violence abroad. Then we saw violence at the American Capitol on January 6th, and it was sort of like those American ideals went out the window. Well, let me go to Kate in San Rafael. Hi, Kate. Hi. Um, I'm boiling it down to something really simple. I've always heard that you can't yell fire in a crowded theater. And it appears that they are yelling fire all the time. And what happens to the people who are getting trampled? They're, the lies that are being spread, if they diminished over 70%, that to me is a very positive thing because people are believing the lies. Kate, thanks for that point. Emily Bazelon, I mean, after 
Trump was deplatformed. It was interesting because we had German Chancellor Merkel basically criticizing that decision, but on the grounds that the United States should have a law restricting online incitement. And my reaction was, we don't? Like, I thought we we did, right? Like what Kate is saying, you can't yell fire in a crowded theater. Like, are our laws not very strong in that arena? They're not very strong in that arena. So the standard we have now is from a 1960s Supreme Court decision called Brandenburg versus Hayes. And it the standard is um, imminent incitement to unlawful action that the speaker specifically intended. So in Brandenburg versus Hayes, you had a rally where a Ku Klux Klan leader was prosecuted and the Supreme Court reversed that prosecution and said no. And what Brandenburg does um, is it really overprotects free speech in this context because, again, we are worried that the government is going to use incitement as a pretext to prosecute dissidents. What we had with President Trump and his involvement, um, the words he spoke before the rally uh, that then turned into a riot, was in the United States, a kind of unusual example of the president standing up and seeming to incite people. And Brandenburg is not a very good uh, safeguard against that particular scenario. It's just that usually we have not experienced that. And so it's just not what our law is really set up to prevent. So do you think that that's one avenue that could be a way to create changes to make those those laws stronger? Is there appetite for I mean, that? It- it could. It's it's all trade-offs, right? So you could imagine a new rule where um, you don't have to show specific intent. Like you wouldn't have to say that in his heart, President Trump wanted those people to rally. Uh, to, sorry, wanted those people to riot. You would say, well, it was reckless what he was doing. And I think if for people who are concerned about what happened on January 6th, that seems like a good rule. But then think about, you know, a Black Lives Matter protest where someone says something angry Um, then does that person get prosecuted? How much do we want to put in the hands of juries this question of recklessness? Would we end up suppressing speech and prosecuting people who, you know, have, uh, are vulnerable and not powerful like the president? That's the issue here is like, what's the best standard overall? Well, let me again ask listeners, do you think the government should do more to control speech that incites violence? What are your feelings around Twitter deplatforming Donald Trump, Facebook suspending Donald Trump, too little, too late, an overreach, 866-733-6786, the number to call, email forum at kqed.org, get in touch on Twitter or Facebook at KQED Forum. In response, Emily Bazelon, to our ask on social media whether Twitter was right to ban Trump, Travis tweeted, short answer, yes. Long answer, yes, obviously. I mean, I think instinctually, just with everything that was going on, it it feels it just our reaction to the times now, it feels that way to a lot of people. Jeff writes, for example, I think Trump should have been banned from Facebook after his comments after Charlottesville. This would have sent a message that the tyranny that we fought against in World War II would not be tolerated. Emma tweets, might it not be effective to require Twitter to enforce their user agreement, period? <laughs> And I think that's part of also some discomfort here because it just feels like Twitter was so squishy before this this act, right, that they took that was pretty major. Yeah, I, I get it. I mean, it is really interesting to imagine what the Trump presidency would have been like if Twitter had taken away his account after Charlottesville. That's just like it would be have been different. It's been really different to have him quiet 
and he's not even in office anymore. So I completely understand the interest in that scenario. Uh, and, you know, on the other side, he's the president of the United States. Like, does he deserve to be treated with some deference, which I think the, the media, the social media companies did give. I mean, there's really no question that Trump, in some instances, broke the rules and they did not enforce those rules as they would have against an ordinary person. So I think you have a choice here. You could make the argument that if you have many millions of followers, you should absolutely be held to those terms of service, like as much or more than other people. And if you're spreading disinformation or incitement or hate speech, like those are the accounts that the platform should focus on for enforcement. Or you can argue that world leaders deserve to be heard, um, as I was saying before, and that's the overriding principle here. And I think people just deeply feel both sides of this um, question, you know, depending where you stand on the political spectrum or what you think about free speech. Well, Daniel writes, individual private Facebook pages have been moderating and removing people who don't follow their guidelines for years. What's the difference with Facebook doing it across the entire platform? That's making me think of another question to ask our audience, which is, are you comfortable with a corporate entity like Facebook's oversight board making final decisions about who should be kept off social media? Again, you can weigh in 866-733-6786 on Twitter or Facebook at KQED Forum or email us at forum at kqed.org. More with Emily Bazelon after the break. I'm Mina Kim. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. This is Forum. I'm Mina Kim. The Facebook and Twitter bans of Donald Trump were major moves for the companies that also demonstrated their immense power. And it's sparking debate as Facebook weighs whether to make the ban permanent. We're talking with Emily Bazelon, staff writer for The New York Times Magazine. Her article, Why is Big Tech Policing Free Speech? Because the Government Isn't, appears in this week's issue. And uh, we've invited you, our listeners, to join the conversation. Tell us what you think about deplatforming the president and the tech companies basically at this point unchecked power to do that with anybody as a result of the fact that they're private entities. Do you think the government should do more to control speech that incites violence? Or what do you think about this sort of path that Facebook is taking with an oversight board to make final decisions about who should be kept off social media? And let me go to caller Peter in San Francisco. Hi, Peter. Yes, hi. I think government regulation is absolutely essential. And basically, they are publishers and are completely exempt thanks to their own lobbying. I believe it's the Communications Decency Act of 1996 that exempts them from routine laws like libel. Uh, uh, 
consequences from threats or plotting, uh, plotting what, whatever. Uh, they've exempted themselves through lobbying for legislation that everybody else is subject to. Uh, they've always uh, censored things, although it's been much less well-known. They've, they've censored on nudity. They've censored here in San Francisco. There was a whole thing with Sister Roma where they made promises and then went back on the promises. They will do whatever suits their business model, and that's another problem. And that is their business model is eyeballs, and it's known that anger and outrage and so on and so forth build eyeballs and build participation. And so that's what they're doing, not looking for publishing of the truth or of, you know, anything that, for example, a newspaper or magazine mm. well, Peter, or be subject to. Thanks for registering your thoughts on that. Let me go next to Brad in Petaluma. Hi, Brad. Hello. Uh, in theory, I'm against censorship of any kind, but we practice it we practice it all the time. If I don't like the way someone speaks, they're not invited to my house. And uh, you have a producer that screens calls, and the New York Times has somebody that oversees letters to the editor. And really crazy and dangerous ideas are uh, maybe chuckled over, but are shunted to the side. So we, we practice censorship all the time, and Donald Trump has plenty of avenues to express his outrage and crazy ideas, so he'll be fine. I, so I think it's a little too late uh, for uh, Twitter and Facebook. Damage has been done, and um, gosh, I hope we can just get back to some sense of normalcy. So thank you for the good show. Continue the good work, and stay warm and stay dry. Thanks, Brad. For that as well, let me read Carolina, who writes, I agree with the comparison to deplatforming ISIS. If we agree that ISIS does not get to push its extremist ideology on the general public, we should agree that QAnon and those who amplify their messages should be deplatformed as well. If we had any elected official constantly retweeting and sharing ISIS content, we would not be having this conversation. I don't think the analysis should change just because the terrorists are white and supposedly Christian. Your reaction to that, Emily Bazelon? I mean, I think it's a really interesting point of view. It's obviously very controversial with some conservative politicians. Um, what we have largely done with ISIS, and I think will do under the Biden administration with this threat of white supremacist domestic terrorism, is to use the tools of law enforcement. But they're not necessarily proactive, right? They're more reactionary. And I, so I think what um, your caller is suggesting is that a more proactive strategy is appropriate no matter the identity of the people who are threatening violence. Well, this listener writes, the government issues broadcast licenses. The same should be done for internet platforms. The airwaves are legally public and the same principle applies. Licensure should be based on adherence to truth. There is no defensible right to lie. I mean, you know, to some extent, should there be like a fairness doctrine for the Internet? Yeah, it's such a great question. The Fairness Doctrine, of course, was in existence um, from the 40s to the 80s, and it meant that if you were covering a public debate on broadcast television, you had an obligation to present multiple points of view. It was basically pro-pluralism. And we don't have it anymore. The Reagan administration ended it. We don't have it on cable television, um, and we don't have it on the internet. And, you know, it would be a different speech universe if rules, if any kinds of public interest obligation applied in those contexts. So I understand the frustration and the impulse. Well, let me go to Luna in San Francisco next. Hi, Luna. Join us. 
Hi. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I guess I hold those sort of uh, American ideals that you had talked about earlier um, in not wanting to regulate free speech. And, you know, further, I, I think it, it's kind of naive to think that the government can regulate free speech. I think the more that the government tries to control it, the more it's going to become something that's, um, you know, available on distributed platforms that uh, isn't uh, centralized, um, cent- centrally available. Um, Luna, thanks. One thing, Emily Bazelon, that I was struck by in your piece, or it may have been one of your previous pieces, where you talked about um, how we should think of the guarantee of free speech as being for democracy. Um, Could you explain what you mean by that? And do you think that we conceive of it in that way in this country? I think sometimes in this country, we think of free speech as a value apart from democracy. And that um, it's in Europe where those two goals are more wedded together. So here's an example of some of the steps the Europeans are considering. And I just wonder if your callers who are skeptical of any regulations on speech might I just wonder what people will make of this. So one idea is you let the companies come up with their own code of conduct, but then you hold them to it. Right now, there's no oversight. It's up to Facebook and Twitter to tell us whatever they want. We don't even have access to their internal data to know if they're telling us the truth about their their own content moderation. So you could have a government agency whose job is just to hold the company to its own standards and provide some transparency. Or you could involve the government in setting the rules, but not have the government actually enforcing those rules, right? I mean, I don't think anyone I hear in this space is comfortable with like the State Department of Content Moderation. But the question is whether there's some further removed oversight rule that some government agency could safely have. And I just don't think we know the answer to that question. And I think the Europeans over the next couple of years are going to try some things and we'll watch and Americans can judge how well or not well they think that works. Let me go to Jerry in Vallejo. Hi, Jerry. Hi. Hi, what's on your mind? Hi. Uh, Well, my question is this. Are we looking at this from the wrong direction? Um, government officials, whether employed or elected, are employees of the people. Nowhere is anybody allowed to lie to their employer without consequences. Shouldn't we say, you know, you got to present the facts rather than some fiction that you've made up? Jerry, thanks. I mean, is that a perspective that could help people maybe be more comfortable with uh, regulating speech? from powerful public figures? I mean, this is a great question. It's one the Supreme Court has never really answered. Like, what is this free speech value of lying? And are there instances in which we should think that it has no value or even that it's destructive? And so actually, it's fine to say that it's not okay to lie, right? I mean, we have statutes that prohibit fraud. And fraud is often words that involve lying. Uh, And so, you know, there is an argument for exactly what your caller is saying, that you should extend some understanding of fraud that would incorporate like mass lying by politicians. I it's not our current law, but again, it's a really interesting scenario to think through. And let me go to Henry in Fairfax. Hi, Henry, join us. I'm wondering what the big deal is about what Facebook and Twitter and other social media platforms do. Nobody is required to have an account on those platforms. 
I don't have accounts there. I never look at them. It doesn't matter. I leave a I lead a, a completely, you know, well-informed life without that. Um, if they want to ban somebody, it's fine with me. Who cares? Why, why is this even uh, so important to uh, debate? Henry, thanks. And that's sort of what we were touching on earlier, right, about the role that these companies now play as almost like a de facto public square. Yeah, I mean, I completely understand the decision to opt out of them. I think the reason people care so much about this is the relationship between the speech on social media, what we read and see and hear in the traditional media, and the relationship between the two. So there's a lot of research that shows that the social media platforms amplify misinformation that starts in the media, and then it kind of feeds back into the media. It's like a network feedback loop in the words of some of those researchers. So that's the concern. I mean, you can choose to ignore it, but it is having some measurable effect on democratic discourse. And even now, Emily Bazelon, we're hearing some conservative um, figures talking about how they do feel like it's more powerful than a government entity. I think you actually uh, wrote about that in your piece, that these entities have so much power that they should be regulated, which is so interesting because it's it's so different from, from you know, the views that were often held previously that you just leave private entities alone. Yeah, so I was writing about that in the context of Amazon Web Services deplatforming Parler. So, you know, Parler was this alternate social media platform. A lot of conservatives flock to it. And then Amazon pulled the plug on it, which is sort of like you go and you decide to publish your own newspaper and then the person who makes ink won't sell you the ink and shuts you down. And one of the people who was really angry about this was a conservative podcaster named Dan Bongino, who had invested in Parler. And he said, this is a de facto government. We should have rules that prevent this from happening, which is not the normal conservative argument. Usually they're kind of more pro-libertarian, let private companies do what they want. But I think you see this sort of wrestling with this same tension here about the, the, the significant role that these companies have. Let me go to caller Donna in San Francisco. Hi, Donna. Hello. Um, What your reporter just said is a really dangerous thing. To say that you have to force one private company to buy, uh, to, to sell ink to another private company because, you know, what else would I do? I'll be out of business. That's ridiculous. The constitution does not apply to private companies. It's a, it's a restriction on government action. There is no state action. There are other ways to regulate what's going on. Donald Trump does not have a right to be on Facebook. Nobody does. It's a private, or it's a private company. We can't force them to put speech up that they don't want to. They, they're publishers. That's what, that's what the answer to this question is. They need to be treated like publishers. Which is basically what we are, what we are talking about. Um, I don't know, Emily, if you just want to quickly respond. Yeah, I mean, I really understand that point of view. Um, Just to throw an idea out there that we haven't talked about, you know, if the platforms have so much um, control over speech, should they be public utilities that are regulated differently, where the First Amendment would apply? Uh, That's an idea that, you know, Senator Elizabeth Warren has talked about on the left. And then people like Josh Hawley, um, a Republican senator, have also been interested in. It's not happening. It would be a radical shift. The companies would fight it hard. But it, you know, it, (laughs) it gets again, it's just another angle on the difficulty of this set of um, questions.
And again, if you want to see Emily Bazelon's piece, it's in the New York Times Magazine this week. The article is Why is Big Tech Policing Free Speech? Because the government isn't. Emily Bazelon is a staff writer for New York Times Magazine. You, our listeners, are with us listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Let me read this comment that came in from Bob, who writes, Deplatforming Trump is naive and very short-sighted. It fails to consider the fact that there's no way to stop him and his followers from buying or starting their own newspaper, radio station, TV station, and or social media platform. Trump should be allowed to be heard, but his toxic lies, hate speech, etc., should be vigorously and relentlessly exposed and condemned publicly. Yeah, so that is a good, solid free speech argument. If people are not allowed on one privately owned platform, they should be able to start another platform. And then if you don't like what they're saying, you fight back in the democratic discourse. Uh, you know, that really was what Parler was trying to do. And then the the company that yanked the plug on Parler, Amazon Web Services, came along and said, well, wait a second, we have a contract with you where you're supposed to um, moderate a lot of speech that could be harmful to others. That language, which is really broad, was in the contract. And so as the previous caller said, like, it's breach of contract. It's pretty simple. Amazon doesn't have to host Parler if it doesn't want to. Um, and so, you know, maybe Parler will get back online. There'll be another competitor who will come in and we can rely on this private market. And maybe that's the way to resolve this. Well, here's another suggestion. Tracy writes, why can't the private platforms provide a moderated service for users that refuse to follow acceptable guidelines? Not clear what form the moderation might take. Annotation of lies, blocking of obviously violent messages, but not a complete ban. I mean, were the warning labels that Twitter applied to Trump's content arguably enough? Uh... Yeah, that was like a try in that direction, I would say. And I think that when we look back at this era, it's going to seem like it wasn't terribly effective. Now, you could argue that they should have put much more prominent labels, like really blocked the content and said, like, this is false. And then you have to click through if you still want to see it. Uh, there's some research suggesting that that kind of fact checking would have been more effective than what Twitter and Facebook already did. So maybe we just really don't know the answer to this. And of course, warning labels are less suppressive of speech than deplatforming or deleting posts, right? So that's one reason why there's some real interest in that um, kind of content moderation. I know you touched on this some, but I don't know if you want to leave us thinking about a quote third way. <laughs> um, I mean, I know it's yeah, very difficult I mean, in this arena. I do but, think mm -hmm. that it's a good idea to be imaginative about some kind of overall legislative framework, or if that makes you nervous, uh, a code of conduct that the companies would sign on to. Something that would take the place of what feels right now like arbitrary decision-making by a handful of tech CEOs who nobody elected and have a ton of power. So I, you know, I just, I don't think we have the answers yet, but I'm really interested in trying to explore some ideas out there. And that's why I'm trying to kind of point people toward um, suggestions from Europe or suggestions from people who study this issue uh, as a way of trying to just like broaden and deepen the conversation. Well, let me just read two more thoughts. A listener writes, if Michelle Carter, a 23-year-old, can be convicted of manslaughter for encouraging her boyfriend to commit suicide, why can't the president be charged with insurrection for encouraging the rally participants to, quote, take back the Capitol? 
This listener writes, I believe the conversation needs to take the bigger view. It is not Trump being deplatformed. It is what we do with individuals that go outside the bounds of socially acceptable behavior. In society, we have social norms. If you kill someone, you're convicted of murder. It is irrelevant who you are, how rich you are, how famous you are. I know that is ideal and not exactly how the real world works, but it is the great justice of the U.S. that we are working towards. Emily Bazelon, I hope you want to leave us with any final thoughts as we wind I down. I like that, um, that notion of the United States. I don't know if we always live up to it, but I'm glad that people are thinking about justice in those terms. Well, Emily Bazelon, staff writer for the New York Times Magazine, her article, Why is Big Tech Policing Free Speech? Because the government isn't, appears in this week's issue. She's also a Truman Capote Fellow for Creative Writing and Law at Yale Law School and co-host of the Slate Political Gab Fest. Emily Bazelon, thanks so much for talking with us today. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks for all the great questions. And thanks so much to our listeners for their questions and their thoughts and comments on this very interesting issue that we're going to continue to see play out as decisions continue to be made by companies, powerful companies with big communication platforms. Thank you to Susan Britton for producing today's segment and forum is also produced by Ariana Prail, Blanca Torres, Judy Campbell, Tina Lauerberg. Our senior editor is Dan Zoll. Our engineers are Danny Bringer, Katie McMurrin, and Brendan Willard. Our interns are Leslie Torres and Kimia Akbari. Our executive editor is Ethan Tobin Lindsay, and our chief content officer is Holly Kernan. I'm Mina Kim. Have a good weekend. Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio and the Germanicos Foundation and the Generosity Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Did you ever wonder what it's like to live alone, hidden in the woods, not speaking to a single soul for 30 years? Or wander the desert, uncover a hidden well, and dive to the bottom of the deepest water hole for 2,000 miles? The Snap Judgment Podcast takes you there with amazing stories told by the people who live them, with an original soundscape that drops you directly into their shoes. Snap Judgment. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.